Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. Let's get started on Thursday's episode where we're going to talk about stuff because I have no idea. I haven't looked it up yet. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Welcome to the bathroom. You've made it. 40% awake. 40%? Wow, that's pretty high. Day on before coffee. Conflict and climate disasters bind to create a record rise in displaced people. What is the Federalist Society and what do they want from our courts? Soldiers, sirens, and the sign of hope as Ukrainian opera premieres in Lviv. 5G networks are performing worse. What's going on? Kremlin calls Poland's decision to rename Kalingrad as Hostile Act. And give him some credit, George Santos has performed a valuable public service. Today, on the May 11th, 2023 edition of Before Coffee. All right, my first news story. Conflict and climate disasters combined to create a record rise in displaced people in Ukraine. A number of people around the world who were forced to flee their homes left by a fifth last year as a perfect storm of Russian assault and Ukraine and climate disasters brought displacement on an unprecedented scale. By the end of 2022, the number of internally displaced people, or IDPs, are forced from their, people who are forced from their homes but remain, remaining within their country of residence reached, reached 71 million. According to figures published by Norwegian Refugee Council Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, or IDMC, up from 51.1 million in 2021. The number of movements made by people, often repeatedly, as they went in search of safety and shelter, was also unprecedented, with a figure of 60.9 million marking an increase of 60% over the previous year. Then there's a graph which shows Ukraine as upwards of 15 million people of internal displacements. So people who are still in Ukraine, but they're not living where they were living last year. They're living somewhere else, mostly in safe areas, right? And then you've got also the DRC, Ethiopia and Somalia. Those also have a lot of internal displacements. And then people who've left their country to climate disaster include Pakistan, the Philippines, China, Nigeria, India, and Bangladesh. And that's just like the top almost 5 million plus people who've moved around. They've been moving around. About 17 million of those movements were triggered by the war in Ukraine, where an estimated 5.9 million are thought to have fled their homes, many having to move repeatedly in order to in an effort to find resources or a place to stay, or just a refugee from a refuge from fighting. The report warns, due to the difficulty in obtaining reliable data from areas occupied by military forces, even those numbers should be considered conservative. So it's even higher than 17 million. Conflicts, disaster, and disasters combined last year to aggravate people's pre-existing vulnerabilities and inequalities, triggering displacement on a scale never before seen, said Jan Egoland, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. The war in Ukraine also fueled a global food security crisis that hit the internally displaced the hardest. Perfect Storm has undermined years of progress made in reducing global hunger and malnutrition. The report, released on Thursday, does not include the early months of 2023, but indicates a dramatic rise in displacement after the latest outbreak of fighting in Sudan. Civil war between forces allied to the two rival Sudanese gun generals has already triggered more than double the number of internal displacements in three weeks than all of last year, it said. Many IDPs face protracted displacement due to conflicts that drag out for years without ever being resolved. Almost three quarters of global IDP populations live in just 10 countries, which we already named. Alexandra Billock, IDMC's director, said today's displacement crisis are growing in scale, complexity, and scope, and factors like food security, climate change, and escalating and protracted conflicts are adding new layers to this phenomenon. Greater resources and further research are essential to help understand and better respond to IDP's needs, she said. 
go. There's a short story on how people are being displaced. And just because you can't see them doesn't mean that it's not happening. Worldwide. And we are the comprehensive news of planet Earth. And a, and a nicer note, nice shirt. I like that shirt. Thank you. It's okay. not my shirt. <laughs> All right. Way to steal properly. Okay. What? <laughs> In U.S. jurisprudence news. <laughs> what is the Federal Society and what do they want from our courts? This is from a website called Counterpunch. The Federal Society is the most successful activist grouping. <clears throat> Restart. The Federalist Society is the most successful activist group to shape, if not make, federal court decisions. How how has that come about? Where did they come from? And what did they want? Before answering these questions, we must appreciate their immense presence in the federal court system. The Federal Society's judge could determine many, if not majority, of decisions from the federal courts. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse says that nearly 90% of President Donald Trump's appellate judges appointed to the circuit courts were members of the Federalist Societies. That's easy to believe given that as a presidential nominee candidate in 16, he promised that his judicial nominees would be all picked from the Federalist Societies. He were elected president. <laughs> Consequently, Consequently, Trump appointed 53 judges to compromise to comprised just under a third of the federal appellate judges. Previously, about half of Bush's appointees to those courts went to society members. That's no surprise because the George Herbert Walker Bush administration gave responsibility for judicial selection in the White House Counsel's Office to Lee Lieberman Otis, a founder, Lieberman Otis, a founder of FS, which is the Federal Society. At the entry level of federal courts, Trump has appointed about a quarter of district court judges. However, he delivered for the Federal Society by selecting three members to the Supreme Court to join the three members already on it. <laughs> then you must add to the Federal, so federal Society judges that remain in this CODIS appointed by Herbert Walker Bush and Ronald Reagan, giving FS effective control over the court's decision. The six SF justices are Brett Kavanaugh, Lied, Neil Gorsuch lied, Clarence Thomas owned, John Roberts, cover-up man, Samuel Leto, leak master, and Amy Coney Barrett, who is about seven years old. Now, now represent the, Amer the Republican appointees on SCOTUS. <coughs> That's six of nine, folks. Having virtual consistency of very conservative judges rising from a district court the circuit court, then the Supreme Court can allow society members to reject prior court decisions that have been accepted for de decades. Wow, where do we see that? Crazy. I describe how an SF district... <laughs> okay, then. What is a federal society? Well, I'm going to skip that little part. It's hard to read. So what is a society that is altering our society? It was founded in 1890. 1982, the Federalist Society focused on spreading conservative ideas in the 1980s really ruined this country. Yeah, really. Hoping, hoping their members would someday deconstruct the liberal-dominated liberal see freedom. Freedom. Yeah. Freedom. That's what it means, folks. Okay, dominated legal system. The society was the first university-based organization to help law students understand and promote a political philosophy. As a former Mother Jones political blogger, Kevin Drum wrote hundreds of groups coalesced around the concept and practice of public interest law before society, the society was formed. Okay, so we got about 20 more paragraphs to go. Do you want to go that far? <laughs> the creation of the Federal Society grew from recognition that it was necessary to educate new lawyers and the need to overturn all the established rationale of liberal judges and to protect the welfare of all citizens and expensive business. Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell sparked that recognition. Before he sat on the Supreme Court, Powell sent a memorandum to the U.S. Chamber of Congress early 1970s framing corporate America's concerns as individual freedom. 
There we go. Citizens United, the birth of that nonsense. Corporations are people and democracy in chains. Nancy McLean writes how Powell's memo argued that the American economic system is under broad attack, pointing to environmentalism and the rise of pro-consumer litigation. But most importantly, he urged businesses to aggressively protect their interests in the courts since they're the most important instrument for social, economic, political change. Why? Because you can get appointed for a lifetime. That's why. The Federal Society can be an instrument for business interests to promote that political change. In addition, it fostered an anti-government regulation philosophy among newatorians, encouraging them to seek judgeships. Federal Society activism works through a network of the conservative donor organizations that Leonard Leo, another of these people that owns Clarence Thomas, helped create. According to Politico, in 2022, Leo obtained a historic $1.6 billion gift for his traditional legal network of nonprofits made possible by, leading, by his leading role in federal society. Leo's network funds political media campaigns that indirectly help politicians support FS candidates, federal court positions between 2015 and 22. Leo's network spend uh, $504 million on policy and political fights, including grants to about 150 allied groups. Federal, federal society's political and financial and political success in shaping federal court decisions rest has federal society's financial and political success in shaping federal court decisions rests as a result from harnessing conservative ideals to promote the monetary interests of business, which turn which in turn fund expanding their influence. The counterweight of this effort must be to preserve liberal bias and legal system that has protected public welfare economically and socially from being sacrificed to the open market. Nick Lucata is the author of Becoming a Citizen Activist. He's the author of the story. Your story. All right. Remember when, I remember when I was in school, maybe this is just, you know, my school that taught me this, but I thought justices are supposed to be apolitical. Uh, (laughs) They weren't supposed to be on a certain side. They were just supposed to look at things objectively. I understand that bias will always exist, and I'm not anti-bias, but the fact that so many Supreme Court justices are from the same field or the same house of, of belief is... You know, obviously, as the article says, very worrying. The Federal Society, including uh, our so-called uh, Attorney General, uh, uh, Merrick Garland. So, and, you know, he's supposed to be fair-minded. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, whatever that means. He sure is dragging his feet on this Trump thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, once again, liberal means freedom. It just does. It just means, well, you know what? There's many choices. I don't have to listen to this one stupid asshole. Your turn. All right. In more Ukrainian news, Lviv's opera house is magnificent. Hasburg era froth of red velvet, gilded cornicing, and writhing caryatids. I don't know what that any of those words means. I think it's just saying that there's really pretty things in the opera, and it has really nice like facades and. It doesn't, nobody bomb it, is what they're saying. Look how great it looks. Please, nobody bomb the opera house. Nobody um, sings in Italian. And to the casual observer, well, there's some Ger- there's some German operas. I'm generalizing. And to the casual observer, the audience, as they settled into their seats, could have been opera lovers anywhere near Europe, but for a few small details. First, the presence of uniformed soldiers in the boxes and prime seats of the stalls. Second, the pre-show announcement that after asking patrons to switch off the phones, offered instructions on what to do in the event of an air raid alert. Third, the fact that before settling into the overture, the orchestra struck up the national anthem, anthem at which the audience rose as one, hands clamped to the chest and sang with full operatic fever. Or fervor, sorry, fervor. The show was a new opera by Yevin Stanyokovich, at 80, one of Ukraine's most significant senior composers, getting its premiere in the teeth of Russia's war. In the wake of the full-scale invasion, especially given Vladimir Putin's insistence that Ukraine is historically indivisible from Russia, culture and the arts are part of the country's resistance. 
Based on Gogol's short story, The Terrible Revenge, the opera was directed by Andreas Weirich, a house director of the Bayerisch Staatsoper in Munich. I can't speak German, only Dutch. Uh, We did some of the rehearsals in the bomb shelter, he said. At times, there were four air raid sirens a day. It became a new normal. The opera house itself is relatively safe position, became a haven in the haven in the early days of the war for colleagues from other companies farther east. It is one of the six Ukrainian opera houses in the farthest west. The one of those six, Donetsk, has been under illegal occupation by Russia since 2014. It initially took in members of the Kharkiv State Opera and Ballet Theater, whose building was pummeled by Russian artillery in spring and summer last year. And at the moment, five company members of the Lviv National Opera, two ballet dancers, two set painters, and an opera singer, are fighting on the front line in Bakhmut and Donetsk region. Before the evening's performance, Tara Berezansky and Darina Litovichenko, who sang the roles of Danilo, the Cossack, at the center of the Gogol's folktale and his wife, Katerina, reflected on the power of performing Ukrainian contemporary music during the time of invasion. It's emotional for us not only performing at this time, because we're giving a message to the audience about what's happening in our shared history with Russia, Berezansky said from his dressing room. In its windows taped up in the ubiquitous wartime measure against shattering glass. He was referring to the opera storyline in which Danilo's father-in-law, the Witcher, turns out to be a dark force, intent on death and destruction. And although Wirk was careful not to make too obvious an identification, it would have been a very flat idea to give the Witcher a a Putin mask, he said. It was not a great leap for audiences to make the connection between the character and the Russian president as the story unfolded on stage. The story is like a myth. It tells you what can happen. Myths always come around again, Weirich said. After half an hour later, the alert raised in case of MIG fighter jets taking off in Russia was lifted and the performance resumed. The show continued without incident. Readers of Gogol, though, would have noticed that Liberato and Protection swerved the bleaky, tragic outcome of the original short story. In Gogol, the Witcher murders Daniel and Katarina's young son. In Stan Koyovich's opera, he survives, a movement reinforced by Weirich's production, which has the young child impatiently pushing away his murderous grandfather. I had to give Ukrainians a way to end the curse. I had to give a sign of hope, Weirich said. There were a few utterly minor changes that I made to the end. Instead, Stankovich, speaking from Kiev, this is because I, as a human and as a composer, could not accept that no heirs could be left to inherit this land, because Gogol has, of course, a rather tragic and terrible ending. It is not the first opera Stankovich has based on Ukrainian writer's work. In 1978, his folk opera When the Fern Blooms was about to be premiered when, as the composer recalled, it was banned. It was moved after dress rehearsal. The set costumes were destroyed and the score consigned to the dusty storerooms of the archive in words of review of its eventual premiere in 2011. The Soviet authorities kindly welcomed me not to talk about this too much and matter was closed, Stankovich recalled. In short, in the Soviet Union, there was a systematic or sometimes brightly expressed, slightly gentle struggle against Ukrainian culture language, against Ukrainian consciousness, he said. From the moment, Russian composers are absent from leave opera house program. This is not a problem for Lito Vajenko, the soprano. When I'm singing Stankovich, I don't miss Russian composers, she said. Yes, uh, famously, the Soviet Union was all about homogeny. So, not only were you not allowed to be Russian, you weren't allowed to be Ukrainian, you weren't allowed to be anything else except for a Soviet. So, which is not how humans work. Humans are not homogenous, no matter how much you want them to be. Even someone in the next, the next house over is going to be completely different from you, even if you grew up in the same exact circumstances. So, yeah. Yeah, this is why liberal is good. So, homogeny is bad. All right. Our next story. All right, then. Five G networks are performing worse. This is from uh, what? What? The, sorry, this is from Spectrum. Okay. This is by Michael Kozial. Five G networks are performing worse. What's going on? 
By now, the solar, solar industry's rollout of 5G networks is three or four years old. And while the industry is still hurting for that killer use case that will cement 5G's place in the highest echelons of cellular technology, the generation is doing at its core what it's supposed to do, sort of. 5G sure. networks. <coughs> Sorry. 5G networks are continuing to deliver better and faster service than 4G in general, compared with 5G service from a year ago. However, the network's upload and download times have generally declined around the world, according to the speed test data from the network diagnostics company Okla. Even the most robust 5G networks are barely cracking one gigabit per, sec gigabit per second, while short, well short of the international telecommunications union's stated ideal download speed of 20 gigabytes per second so that's 1 20th of the speed i can do math part of the problem is the same problem had by every cellular generation these are the most normal growing pains as more customers buy new phones and other devices that can help tap into these networks you took 4g and we had the same said mark giles are you look at 4G, we had the same, said Mark Giles, an industry analyst at Ookla. So with initial developments of 4G, there was a lot of capacity to soak up these early users. And then as more and more users come on, that capacity gets used up. So you need to look at this, this, this densification, there we go. You need to look at densification. Failing to build our own millimeter wave networks that hasn't helped 5G through through its growing pains. Giles points out that most network operators begin their 5G rollouts by deploying non-standalone 5G networks. In these instances, the 5G network is built upon the existing 4G network's core infrastructure. While standalone 5G isn't expected to perform as well as alternate and standalone 5G, it's much cheaper and easier to deploy because it doesn't have to be built out from scratch. The strategy, the strategy has hampered 5G deployments because the operators are limited to building 5G networks wherever they have existing cell towers and other infrastructure, but cost is the only factor. There are also regulatory and permitting, permitting problems that operators are running up against, particularly in dense urban areas. Sometimes the biggest challenge is simply finding a spot to put a new cell site in the first place. Outside of cities, different problems are taking root. The big selling point for 5G is its ability to tap into bands of spectrum, most notably the millimeter wave band, which is 24 to 40 gigahertz, which can support lower latencies and greater data rates. The caveat of all higher frequencies, however, is that they don't travel particularly far. The higher the frequency, the narrower the bandwidth, the less gain for areas. So you gotta put Yes. Closer together, closer together. They gotta be closer together. That's great for cities, less so for su suburbs or rural areas. As for more people in more places, start using 5G networks. There's some degradation in network performance to be expected in aggregate because of that fact. Millimeter wave also has been barely any uptake. Millimeter wave has also seen barely any uptake outside of a handful of countries, including the United States, and even then. Even there, it's been limited. Companies like Verizon, initially bullish on millimeter wave, have instead pivoted to the other newly available bands, most notably the C band, which is four to eight gigahertz. As of 2022, 140 operators in 24 countries have millimeter wave licenses, says Giles, citing data from the Global Mobile Suppliers Organization. But only 28 and 16 countries have actually deployed it. So it's a small group. It's a very small fraction of operators actually going after it. The aspirational 5G lawnmower speed of 20 gigabytes per second, originally cited by the International Telecommunications Unit, is still just that, aspirational. Millimeter wave is seeking some limited use in areas that have been massive congestion, think sports stadiums and airports, but failing to build up millimeter wave as broader backbone component of 5G networks, regardless of whether it's too expensive or technically limited, hasn't helped 5G through its periods of growing pains. Of course, coverage is not universal, especially as the techni techni 
technology behind cell networks becomes more complex, the theoretical maximum download speeds become harder and harder to realistically attain. The aspirational download speed of 20 gigabytes per second cited by ITU is just that. Asper he just said that. You're never going to see that kind of performance that's like with as much spectrum bundled together. It's highly capable device, totally stationary, no one else on the cell, clear day with perfect conditions, said Giles. What's more attainable is what the ITU has said. It's a user experience data rate, which the organization said should be about 100 megabits per second, down in 50 megabits per second up. By that metric, even though speeds had degraded in the past year, the median 5G network experience in many countries still meets that benchmark from the ITU. If you can't reach an aspirational benchmark, then lower the benchmark. It's not being realistic. It's way too early to say whether or how 5, 6G development will be affected by 5G's early stumbles. But there are a handful of possible impacts. It's conceivable, for example, given a lackluster debut of millimeter wave, that the industry devotes less time in the terahertz wave research and instead considers how cellular and Wi-Fi technologies could be merged in areas requiring dense coverage. I think it's revealing that the disconnect between the vision for these G threes for these Gs and what actually on the ground, Giles said. I think that's what this degradation is really highlighting. Your story. Boring technical news. Yeah. <laughs> why don't Woo! Why don't they invent like a? They should invent radio waves that can go through the ground. That would be, that would be the successful, penetrating mountains. That would ground, be a successful. Ground penetrating. Ground, ground penetrating radar, huh? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine a bone structure just being dissolved by that. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, probably. Let's <laughs> <laughs> have right. that going all the ways, yeah. Uh, in more in more Eastern Europe news, Poland's renaming Kaliningrad, and Russia is not happy about that at all. The Kremlin has described Poland's decision to rename the Russian city of Kalin Kaliningrad in its official documents as a hostile act as ties continue to fray over the Ukrainian war. Kaliningrad, which sits in an exclave sandwiched between Lithuania and Poland on the Baltic coast, was known by the German name of Konisberg until after the Second World War, when it was annexed by the Soviet Union and renamed the honor to honor politician Mikhail Kalinin. Yeah, okay, so perfect reason to rename it then, because it was it only recently changed. On Wednesday, Poland's development minister, Waldemar Bruda, said Kaliningrad would now officially be called Krolowik. Its name, when it was ruled by the king of Poland in 15th and 16th century. Was that the after the first annexation of Poland or the second annexation of Poland? You know how many times Poland's been annexed? Way too many times. Poor Poland. No, it's amazing they even know anything about their history. That's all I have to say. Because <laughs> they've been annexed so many times. Everybody's like, we're just... Sorry? Everybody's like, we're just passing through. We're on our way to, you know, Sudetenland or wherever, you know. We're oh, debating we you just to make a foothold. Yeah. What? <laughs> and yeah. then they're like, hey, can we conk you, by the way, while we're here? <laughs> yeah. You don't mind. On Wednesday, Poland's development minister, Waldemar Bruda, said... Kongar would now officially. Oh, no, I already said that one. We do not want Russification in Poland! And that is why we have decided to change the name in our native language of Kaliningrad and the Kaliningrad region, Buddha said, citing a recommendation by a state commission tasked with standardizing foreign names in the Polish language. Warsaw saw Kalinin's connection to the 1940 Katyn massacre, where 1,000 of Polish officers were executed by Soviet forces, had negative connotations. The current Russian name of the city is an artificial baptism, unrelated to the, either the city or the region, Poland's Committee of Geographical Standardization said on Tuesday. This is true. It really does have nothing to do with Poland. It's, you know, most places are named after what's there, right? Like, d just down the street from where I live, there used to be a place called... Uh, what was it called? Was it Jakobswada? It literally means, like... Jacob's Wood. So some guy yeah. named Jacob lived in the woods somewhere. You know, like that's what yeah. places are named up. People, 
Yeah, okay. Kalingrad literally means Kalinin's city, right? But it's not his city, because he's dead. And he's just okay. a conqueror, so he should... Yeah, let's get rid of that. Forget him. Yeah, forget him. Spokesperson Dimitri Peskov said the decision bordered on madness. Changing the name of a place? That's crazy! We know you that remember Leningrad? Poland has slipped from time to time into the madness right. of hatred towards them. <laughs> These guys are so full of themselves. Uh, those yeah. Polish people sometimes they don't like us, and then sometimes they do like us. Like, they just don't understand that Russia is always going to be their friend, even though every time we go there, we conquer them and then subjugate their people. Kalingrad was cut off from Moscow when Lithuania became independent during the breakup of Soviet Union in 1991. In the city itself, people were split over the Polish move. This land is conquered by us, by my ancestors. This is our territory, and there can be no Krolowik whatsoever, said an elderly man who did not give his name because he'd probably get beaten up in the street if they found out there was a pro-Russian living in their neighborhood. <laughs> Let's be honest. Uh, others appeared to be less upset. One woman noted Lithuania had also renamed the city. It was already, yeah, it was already been renamed in Lithuania. That's great. Nothing would change apart from the need to change all their documents. If they want it, let them do it, she said. Relations between Poland and Russia have often been strained, probably because Russia is always threatening Poland. Moscow says it liberated Poland, liberated Poland when its forces drove out Nazi forces at the end of the war. Most Poles believe that Soviet Union replaced Nazi occupation with another form of rep repression. Yeah, most people would agree. Poland and NATO members strongly backed Ukraine after Russia's invasion and stepped up to the demolition of memorials to fallen Soviet troops across the country. Famously, this is in the article, but famously, Poland had, or Warsaw, had the most, some of the most rebellions and riots against Russia, uh, Russian uh, rule Not during bad. the Soviet Union. They had the most bloodiest of riots against protests against, you know, communism or whatever oh. they were protesting. So, oh, yeah, the beginning of the... But they totally were fr best friends, you know? Poland and Russia loved each other. That, that's why they were getting in fights all the time. Yeah, well, uh, the uh, beginning of the end of the Cold War started in Poland with Lech Walesa and Solidarity Union. Exactly. And uh, the Polish Pope also contributed to that quite a bit. Your story. Okay, then. George, this is from the in Independent UK. Giving him some credit, George Santos, Serge Santos has performed a valuable public service. I would like to be... Long before his arrest on Wednesday for fraud, a money laundering and money laundering and theft of public funds, George Santos was a pariah in the Long Island Congressional District to which he was elected president. He was a subject to almost daily protests and press conferences organized by local residents. The Nassau County Republican Party disowned him, and so did six local Republican members of Congress. He was rarely seen out in public, and uh, don't forget. Mitt Romney famously called him a sick puppy. His only safe space, it seems, was Washington, D.C. He was a, sto he was a story of electric electoral, electoral poli politics turned on its head. A member of Congress should, in theory, have more to fear from the snake pit of capital than the people who elected him. The reason why Santos didn't, didn't tells us something about the state of the Republican Party today. Let's start with the uncontested truth. George Santos is an imposter. That is true by any measure of the word. He lied about his own personal history, his experience, and his wealth. That is without even mentioning his as yet unproven allegation about his campaign spending, which has now resulted in charges of federal from federal prosecutors. My lights blinking. Much of what is known about Santos today was public knowledge when voters cast their ballots. <laughs> Much of what is known about Santos today was not public knowledge when voters cast their ballots for him. The same can be said for many of the local Republicans who backed him and fundraised for him. Although given that it is their job to vet candidates running for their own party, they cannot escape blame. But once the most egregious of Santos' lies became public, most local Republicans joined and calls for his resignation. George Santos' campaign last year was a campaign of deceit, lies, and fabrication. Nassau County Republican Party Chairman Joseph Cairo said in a news conference earlier, earlier this year. 
TDC, the voters of the 3rd Congressional District, TDC, members of Nassau County Republican Committee, elected officials, his colleagues, candidates, his opponents, and even some of the media. Even some of the media? <laughs> okay. okay. Why not all the media, asshole? Kyra said. He, did, he disgraced the House of Representatives, and we do not consider him one of our Congress people. Compare that to the response of GOP House Speaker Kevin... I'll fall for anything, so I stand for nothing. McCarthy, the man, <laughs> the only man in the party where the power to take action to expel Mr. Santos by holding vote in the House and whipping his members to secure two-thirds majority. What are the charges against him? Is there a charge against him? He responded when questioned by reporters of Capitol Hill. You know, in America, you're innocent to proven guilty. The voters are the power. The voters made the decisions, and he has a right to serve here. If there was something that rises to the occasion that he did something wrong, then we'll deal with it at the time, Mr. McCarthy added. Even after charges were filed, Mr. McCarthy stood firm. If a person is indicted, they're not on committees. They have a right to vote, but they have they have but they have to go on to trial, he said Tuesday in response to the report on what that charges were imminent. It sounds like his lawyer. What is the reason? <laughs> what is the reason for the clear divide between Republicans in New York and the national leadership? In short, naked political necessity. McCarthy benefits from the same basic facts about Santos as everyone else. He can be under no illusions about the con and the character behind it. But after years of a years-long effort, McCarthy ascended to the Speaker's chair as a weakened leader. Not only had he been forced to bend the knee to former President Trump after publicly criticizing him, his party also merged in the midterms of a majority, just four-seat majority in the House. And you take away one George Santos, and you've got three seats. Four, minus one, three. That's not good for McCarthy. After the brutal fight, McCarthy was faced with a choice. He could listen to Republicans who live and work in the district of Santos now represents and remove the imposter, or he could ignore the problem entirely. <laughs> in choosing the latter, <laughs> McCarthy reaffirmed the lengths to which he is willing to maintain his tenuous grip on the party. It tells us something about the state of the Republican Party and perhaps Congress that a con man will be allowed to sit in the most powerful legislative body in the world to cast his vote on matters of life and death and war in the interest of serving one party. It also reveals a weakness in the heart of the electoral system. There is no mechanism to remove someone in office who has admitted to lying their way to the seat. If we're looking for some reason, some lesson in the Santos affair, perhaps this is the best we can hope for. A brief ray of sunlight shone into the dark corner of a dusty back room. And for really and for really revealing this corruption in Congress, we might credit Santos for performing his first and only act of public service. Uh sure. He's saying that tongue in cheek. But yeah. Yeah, sure. That's the that's the deceit going on. And again, one party can just lie and get away with it. You tell me. Bunch of liars. That's fine. Lie all you want. Well, I mean, they what are we again. supposed to do? Right? They elected Trump. They're, they yeah. like liars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, what? Lie to me. Why? George Santos, you're a ballerina? Sure. Why not? You're a ballerina. Why not be a ballerina? Your, your story. <laughs> all right. Speaking of uh, the world going to shit. <laughs> this culture. is what the show's about. The world's going to shit. Ooh, yeah. what a theme. What a theme. What a theme. In culture, Good. we're going to talk about a new book being written by Malcolm Harris about greed, eugenics, and giant gambles. That we're the doing deadly entertainment toll, news, man. The deadly toll of Silicon Valley capitalism. In January 2011, a 19-year-old Palo Alto died by suicide on the train tracks running through part of town part of a disturbing decade-long pattern of deaths of despair in the wealthy heart of Silicon Valley. The same week, a 19-year-old Chinese worker at Foxconn, the company that built iPhones, also died by suicide, part of a series of deaths among young people working on the grueling assembly lines of one of China's most famous tech manufacturers. Paulo Alto, a new book by American author Malcolm Harris, attempts to understand the connection between these two patterns of suicide and two different hubs of the global tech economy. To do so, Harris deeps, 
digs deeply into the history of Palo Alto, the home of Stanford University, and the town where he grew up. As a teenager coming of age in the early 2000s, he saw the town's international influence grow along with the tech companies headquartered around it and the number of suicides among his classmates. You open the book by writing about a series of youth suicides at your Palo Alto High School and across the town starting in 2022, or 20, 2002, sorry, 2002. Why were these suicides so shocking and why did they attract so much national attention? Quantitatively, the rate was much higher than other towns, which as a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report confirmed, even though they couldn't confirm anything else about what was going on, it felt unrelenting. It involved kids who went to college and died their freshman year, and kids who came back after dropping out of their freshman year. The last suicide involving Cal Caltrain by a young person in Palo Alto community was, I think, two weeks ago. It keeps happening. How do you understand this sequence of suicides of your classmates? I understood it as a consequence of the exceptional, exceptional, wait, exceptionalism of our community. Young people were asked to perform a particular role within the community, which was to work hard enough to justify and perpetuate the privileges of this place. They were having us compete against each other at a very high level all the time in a way that was breaking kids. The school responded by trying to have homework holidays, two days in the semester, two random days off from homework where you can play with your friends, which of course didn't work because the teachers had assigned twice as much work the next day. The conditions under which young people were operating, this expectation of hard work leading to burnout and self-destructive behavior, was the solution to some larger historical problems, though I don't know that I didn't know at the time. But I knew it had something to do with the inequality in America, and it had something to do with wealth. What helped you understand the historical roots of the crisis? I read Charles Marvin's description of the Palo Alto system, a new scientific method of breeding and training horses developed by Leyland Stanford in the 1880s. How they were running through these young horses at a higher rate, busting their limbs. That was really chilling. I've talked to people in the community and it resonated with them in the same way. This idea of wasting good material and that, and that still being part of a rational production process under capitalism has creepy resonances with the deaths of these children. So basically what he's saying is they were creating an environment to create the smartest kids ever, the next, you know, Steve Jobs or whatever. But humans aren't meant to be put under that much pressure, and so they jumped in front of trains. Yeah. The original pitched yeah. Paul Alto as the part, a part history, part memoir. But in the writing of it, you end up taking out most of the personal stories. What are some of the memoir pieces that you cut? One of my first jobs was working at SCORE, a for-profit tutoring center in Palo Alto. It was so sad. The, the tutoring was automated through computers based on behaviorist system. Deployees weren't teaching anything. You're acting as a reinforcer, not as a teacher. Checking stuff off. Making sure the students stayed sitting at their desks and controlling the reinforcement system, which was all about points and pieces of plastic. It was awful for the students and pretty miserable for the employees. And it paid minimum wage. How did you become radicalized? That would have radicalized me. That working as a tutor, being an enforcer. Yeah. But how was Harris radicalized? I was a left-wing Democrat and wanted to do the whole West Wing thing. But I took my opposition to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq really seriously. And liberals were not organizing against war. The protests led by radicals and anarchists. That's who I ended up organizing with. The financial crisis is when I came to embrace revolutionary tactics. You can be a Marxist in terms of class analysis, but that wasn't the important shift for me. It was realizing I didn't want the system to continue. I didn't think it can solve its own problems. In fact, I think it is a problem. It was during the votes around the bailouts I didn't want to bail the system out. Yeah, I think a lot of bail- I think the bailout thing definitely radicalized a lot of people. Like, really? Too big to fail, huh? We- I have to go poor, can't eat you know, get kicked out of my house, but banks, <laughs> they'll be fine, no matter what happens. Right. They turn rich people. Your book, Presents of Belief in Eugenics, is one of the most important intellectual threads that run through Paulo Alto's history. Is eugenics still a force in this region today? We've seen a huge swing back towards eugenics philosophy in Palo Alto. There are a lot of startups invest invested in eugenics technology. If you ask people, is that eugenics? They'll say, no! 
But if you ask, are you trying to improve the quality of baby stock? Well, obviously. These people are constantly forgetting the names of what they're doing, intentionally or unintentionally, or as a useful adaption, because they can sell old school eugenics as some new app. Ooh, if you have your baby on this moon sign during this, the stars aligned, you'll create a perfect human. Mm. One of the wow. wildest sectionary books describes how Jane Stanford, one of the university's wealthiest founders, appears to have been murdered with sterosine, perhaps with the involvement of David Starr Jordan's Stanford president at the time. Why don't more people know about this? It's crazy, right? Richard White, the author of Who Killed Jane Stanford, gives Jordan slightly more benefit of the doubt than I do. But people in Palo Alto know Jordan is shady. They took his name off the, off the middle school. I'm waiting for the Netflix show. Your book follows the history of technological innovation in California before Silicon Valley even became Silicon Valley. Tracing the rise of Hewlett-Packard and Intel, the invention of semiconductor and the personal computer, more recent social media innovators like Facebook and Twitter. Looking back, technological change over decades, does it seem like Silicon Valley is getting dumber over time? Yes, straight up. The leading Silicon Valley companies now, with the tracking investment, is incredibly stupid if you compare it to the 60s, when they were creating microchips. You don't even have... You don't have a very flattering view of Silicon Valley billionaires, whom you refer to as Airbnb bozos. A slack-limped puppet who have nailed their hands to historical forces. As someone who has chronicled a century's worth of stories Californian entrepreneurs, what do you make of Elon Musk? We should think about him less. I don't think Elon Musk is going to be an important man in 10 years. He's gotten lucky a few times. He's good at being a gambler. There aren't that many people in the world who are willing to take billions from the Saudi Arabia royal family and gamble on some stupid bullshit. People who can do things like this, Musk, WeWork founder Adam Newman, go to sleep and do it again in the morning are very important to how the economy works right now. They might not be good at anything except being willing to take huge risks again and again, despite the results. In your book's conclusion, you endorse the abolition of Silicon Valley. What is your specific proposal for what should happen? Stanford, an institution, acknowledges the ancestral title of Muakema Olon tribe. The university has the opportunity to lead in returning land to indigenous tribes. Hell yeah, I love this guy even more. <laughs> I love returning land to the indigenous. Yes, if Stanford wants to change things, they have new climate school. I have this new climate school I was just reading about, with oil and gas companies directly involved. They can lead on returning resources to groups of people who have plans for what ecologically sustainable village would look like on the land. Some people treat this proposal as reasonable and pragmatic. Some people treat it as ridiculous provocation. I think these kind of transfers are the only way humanity can move forward. As a book with a bright Instagramable cover and an impressive heft, Palo Alto seems designed to be one of the this summer's trendy leftist beach reads. I don't know, uh, okay, but as, <laughs> I think I would get angry if I was reading this book. I would not be like, oh, nice day at the beach. I'd be like, ah, I need to listen to some, some music to get my rage out. The New York Times assigned a reviewer for instance who wrote, Karl Marx's long shadow darkens every page. What happened there? You'd have to ask them. It looked like a political agenda. The Times review was a real outlier. Even the conservative publication said, this guy is a dirty commie, but eh, we like the writing. <laughs> Have you heard any responses yet to your book from Palo Alto's current tech bros? No. I've seen a little poo-pooing from Twitter venture capitalists, but I don't think they've read the book. It's only been out a couple months, and it's long, especially for anyone who's like, I work 17 hours a day answering emails. I'm skeptical of people who've already finished it. <laughs> and that's our little short interview, or I guess long interview, from Malcolm Harris wrote an entire book on Palo Alto and the crazy Silicon Valley capitalism that has been running wild for decades now and is really meeting burning its people end. In, burning so, people into mindless drones who just yeah. perform tasks. Okay, so this day in history, 1811, conjoined twins Chang and Eng, who'd gained worldwide fame in the 19th century, were born. Conjoined twins, otherwise known as Siamese twins, which became... Uh, because of them, I think, became the word. Yeah. It was because they of them. They were born in Long, Siam, which is Thailand. 1846, James K. Polk asked Congress to declare war on Mexico on this day. 1885, American jazz cornetist King Oliver was born in Bend, Louisiana. 
1988, an American composer Irving in Berlin was born in Russia. Uh, in 1894, railroad workers for, uh, for the Pullman Palace Car Company went on strike. The protest continued for several months until the federal government intervened. Good for them. 1910, Glacier National Park was established in the Rocky Mountain Wilderness in northwestern Montana. In 1918, American theoretical physicist Richard Feynman was born in New York City. Uh, there you go. 1943, World War II, U.S. troops invaded Atu, one of the Aleutian Islands, captured by the Japanese in 1942. In 1960, some 14 years after escaping from the Persian camp, a former Nazi official Adolf Eichmann was captured near Israeli intelligence agents near Buenos Aires. He was later taken to Israel, where he was tried, convicted, and executed. In 1981, Jamaican reggae star Bob Marley died at the age of 36 from cancer because he wouldn't get his foot operated on. In 1997, IBM's chess-playing computer Deep Blue defeated Gary Kasparov in the last game of a six-game match to claim a 3.5 to 2.5 victory in chess. It won two games and had three draws. It marked the first time a Kurt World Champion had lost a match to a computer under tournament conditions. Big victory for AI, 1997. Nice. 2010, Scottish-born politi politician Gordon Brown officially resigned as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, ending a 13 years Labour Party rule. And they never attained power, so that's why you never heard of that guy. And National What Is It Day is a very short one for a change. It is actually kind of cool. National Foam Rolling Day. So it's National Eat What You Want Day, which is I'm always yeah. known for. And National Twilight Zone Day, which is every day in this country. <laughs> and that's today's Day Days. No into to the Twilight Zone. That one sunk. Nope. No Monty Python's impersonations today. Don't have time. <laughs> All right. This has no been more. Allison from Europe talking about Ukraine and Russia and how Poland is getting rid, is getting the target drawn on them because they changed the name of a city. Uh, I hope to see you tomorrow for Friday and uh, have a good weekend if you, we don't see you tomorrow. Be good to each other out there. May 11th, 2023 edition of Before Coffee. Be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons, and follow our other channels, Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old Records.